around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? SAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today is an exciting day on Terranauts because we have our first ever sponsor for an episode, and that sponsor is MDA. Serving the world from its Canadian home and global offices, MDA is an international space mission partner and a robotic satellite systems and geo-intelligence pioneer with 50 years of experience developing custom technology solutions to some of the world's biggest challenges. Today, they are leading the charge towards viable moon colonies, enhanced Earth observation, communication in a hyperconnected world, and more. To learn more, visit mda.space. And now, on with the show. Today on Terranauts, we have a very special guest. Sarah Gallagher is a Terranaut of a whole different magnitude than most of the guests on this show. Usually we talk to people whose trips off the planet involve uh, virtual trips of a few hundred or a few thousand kilometers since they mostly work in orbit around the Earth. Sarah Gallagher's work in space takes her literally light years from Earth in search of some of the most interesting objects in our universe. Sarah Gallagher has a PhD in astronomy from Penn State University and currently teaches at the University of Western Ontario. She's also the science advisor to the president of the Canadian Space Agency. Her work on quasars regularly takes her not only off the planet, but to galaxies far, far away. And that definitely makes her a Terranaut. Sarah Gallagher, welcome to Terranauts. Thank you so much, Ian. It's my pleasure to be here. So, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? So I'm originally from the U.S., so I grew up in the States. Um, when I was a kid, my, my parents moved around a lot. So I lived um, in the East Coast, and then, um, and then I lived in Ohio, and then I, the last place I lived in, uh, in the U.S. was in Los Angeles. And so growing up, were you interested in space? Were you interested in astronomy? Did you think that's what you would end up doing with your life? No, not at all. Um, I mean, I would I would characterize myself as being someone who is abundantly curious. So I was curious about lots of different things. And certainly there's a lot to be curious about um, in space. I've always really loved science fiction, though. So I was of the generation that uh, actually saw the first Star Wars in the movie, right, movie right. theater. So that was something that was very exciting and inspiring. Right. And I would say that I'm a very imaginative person as well as a kid. So the idea of distant worlds and uh, the possibility of life outside of our, our planet is certainly something that's always been very intriguing to me. Right. So how did you end up studying astronomy then? So it's actually, it's not that exciting of a story. <laughs> I, uh, I went to, uh, I went to um, undergraduate studies and I originally I thought that I would be an engineer because that seemed like a very uh, useful thing to do for somebody who enjoyed math and science. Um, but I have to tell you that uh, first year chemistry just did me in because I thought it was so boring. Um, but I really, really loved physics. And, uh, and in physics, I was able to take this fantastic course. And what was so exciting about it for me was that one of the first things we did was talk about relativity. Right. And, 
And so for me, just hearing about relativity and this kind of weirdness about the universe was super, super exciting. There are a few things weirder than relativity when you first... It's, uh, it's just, it's really mind blowing because it's completely counterintuitive. And, um, other, but, other than maybe Schrodinger's cat, that's probably, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that also is, is non-intuitive. So, so you, you decided that you wanted to study, uh, astronomy. And so you eventually ended up at Penn state. And what was the big deal about going to Penn state at the time that you did? So it was a very exciting place to go. It was a department that was uh, that was growing, and so they were hiring lots and lots of people. But one of the coolest things about it is that the principal investigator for the main instrument for Chandra, Gordon Garmeyer, was based at Penn State. Right. And uh, I started graduate school in 1997, mm-hmm. and uh, and Chandra launched in 1999. So, so 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 maybe explain to the uninitiated what what is a Chandra and why does that matter to the rest of us. Uh, I'm happy to do so. So Chandra is, it's, uh, it's a X-ray observatory. So it's called the Chandra X-ray observatory. What is so special about it is that it has exquisite mirrors, which means that it is able to focus X-rays and it is really, really hard to focus X-rays. You have to go into space, first of all, to catch X-rays because our atmosphere, fortunately, blocks X-rays <laughs> from space. That's right, a good right. thing. Yes, yes. Um, So we have to go into space, um, but they're very hard to focus because for a normal mirror, uh, the x-rays just pass right through the, Uh right through the metal. Okay. So if you want to focus x-rays, what you actually have to do is you have to have a mirror that's sideways and then you bounce the x-rays off of them. So So you only get the grazing, uh, you you only reflect grazing x-rays. You don't get any. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't get them straight through because they'll just pass straight through the metal. They're very penetrating. So if you want to focus them, you have to bounce them off at a very shallow angle. So x-ray mirrors are actually very unusual um, is they're basically big tubes. Mm. Um, And, and in order to get a very clear picture, they have to be extremely smooth because they have to be about as smooth as the wavelength of an x-ray, which is tiny. It's like the size of an atom. So these are, these, when they were made, were the smoothest surfaces ever made. Interesting. So, so, so why does, why does having high quality x-ray pictures of the universe, what, what does that do for us? Uh, it does a ton for us because it actually allows us to pinpoint where every single one of those x-rays came from. Okay. So, um, it, so for example, it can give us beautiful pictures of star forming regions where before you would just see this kind of fuzzy blob. Um, and then with Chandra, you can actually pick out the thousands of baby stars that are being born in nearby star forming regions. And all of a sudden you can pinpoint there's a baby star and there's a baby star because, uh, newborn stars actually give off quite a lot of x-rays compared to normal stars. So that's an an easy way to find baby stars. And those x-rays can penetrate the deep clouds that, uh, that the, the stars are in. And so Chandra represented a major advance on our ability to do X-ray astronomy. What were we doing up until then? So up until then, we had um, a few, there'd been a number of X-ray observatories. So when I first started, um, um, I was using an X-ray observatory, which was called 
um, Oscar, which was a, a Japanese X-ray observatory. There was another one called Rosat, which was German, and um, and so they just there were two things they couldn't take such beautiful pictures. The other thing Chandra could do is it could measure the energy of each one of the X-rays, and it just had a really big mirror, so it could catch lots of them. So you're able to measure the energy, make beautiful pictures, and make really sensitive pictures. So those were three massive advances that really just um, expanded our understanding uh, of what we could see dramatically. So, so you arrived about a year before Chandra launched, you said? You- about, yeah, uh, about two years before Chandra launched. Okay, two yeah. years before. But, but there must have been people at Penn State who had been working on that project for literally portions of their whole careers, right? I mean, this is something that, that the X-ray astronomy community had been looking forward to for a long time. Absolutely. So the, um, I mean, Chandra was one of NASA's great observatories. So that means uh, there were four flagship observatories that NASA launched. Um, in so the Hubble is probably the most famous one right, right. that everybody's heard of. And Chandra was the one that um, that targeted X-rays or what we call the high energy universe because okay. really um, energetic, uh, really hot things, black holes, all the exciting stuff basically gives off X-rays. So Chandra was targeting that and, uh, and all of the great observatories, basically, I mean, you're, I don't think you were a great observatory unless your entire mission got canceled at least once. By <laughs> so right, right. That's just par for the course with those things. And absolutely, they take decades to, to make happen because you have to, um, there's so many um, advances, technological advances that you right. have to make. Right. Um, in order to make them happen, to make them great, because we don't get that many, we don't get that many observatories. So if you, you want the next one to be awesome, right? um, and it needs to be way better than what came before. And so that takes a lot of work. Yes, yes. Well, there's no point in, in, if you're going to spend that much money to put an observatory in orbit, it better be able to do things on order of magnitude better than we've been able to do. Oh, at least. Right. (laughs) At least it's got to be way, way better. Yes, absolutely. So, so, so you were working with a bunch of people who literally had invested decades in, in getting this to orbit. What was it like on launch day, what was a day to sit like to sit with those people and watch this thing get strapped to a bomb with a hole in one end and fired through the atmosphere at Mach 20? Because like this is reasonably precision optics. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and there it's it's one of those things you never forget. So I was not physically present at the launch. Right. Um, I wasn't, you know, that much of of the <laughs> um, but we had our whole team um, at Penn State, and we had a special feed from NASA, and we, yes. had, uh, we had reserved an auditorium. It was a night launch, so it oh, happened wow. at night. Um, so we were in, uh, in you know, universities are generally pretty quiet um, yes. at night. It was at, uh, I think it was about 10 o'clock at night. So all of us were sitting in the auditorium. There were about maybe 20 of us in the auditorium. And of course the auditorium fits, sits like hundreds of people, but sure, it was sure. 10 of us or 20 of us sitting in this auditorium. And there's just this, you know, the countdown and, it, and the whole thing is dark. And then you see the engines fire. And I was sitting next to one of my friends, Pat Bruce, who was an engineer. And he goes, right. this is the worst. This is the worst. <laughs> so, and you just watch that. You yes. watch the fire go, you know, the, right. yes, the exhaust come. And then, and they're so dramatic at night, right? So yes. it just oh, yes. up. Yes. And there were also, there were lots of things that were very exciting about the launch. So Chandra was the biggest payload that was ever in a shuttle. 
Okay. So, so that, I mean, the size yes. of the city bus yes. was a huge yeah. payload. And, and then, and uh, payload bay is a good size. So that makes yeah, it yeah. pretty and it was the biggest yeah. payload they ever had. Um, the other thing that was very cool is it was the first time there was a female commander for a shuttle. Oh, so I, yeah, Eileen Collins. Oh, Eileen Collins. That's neat. Yeah. yeah, that was her first, uh, her first command. So it was, it was an important event for lots of different reasons. And we were just watching and then there's, you know, the first stage falls off and there's, mm-hmm. oh, okay, we made it past the first stage. <laughs> well, you know? well, well, my little story, which I've told before, is that when I worked, I probably was at, I wasn't at JSC anymore when, when Chandra launched, but, but in the time leading up to it. Um, obviously, I, I worked at JSC in the in uh, the mission operations director for the space shuttle, and so you know, you everybody there would stop everything they were doing when whenever there was a shuttle launch. Obviously, um, and uh, it wasn't that long. This time wasn't that long after the Challenger disaster, which was of course happened when the solid rockets uh, separated. And so, whenever anybody watched the launch, the room was always full until the solid separated. No one ever left. Mm-hmm. So, and then, and then people would start to drift out if they had other things to do. But that first moment for anybody who'd worked on the shuttle program, that was still the, the, the moment when their heart was in their throat was until they saw the solids separate. So I'm sure it was the same way. And, and you must've been sitting with people who had, you know, had treated this instrument literally with, literally with kid gloves who had, you know, to be in the room with it, you had to get into all sorts of protective gear and almost, you know, speak in hushed tones because you were afraid of disturbing these extremely sensitive optics and electronics. And and then to watch it get blasted into space on top of that column of fire must, must just have been terrible for them. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was really rough. One of my good friends, uh, Lisa Townsley, had been in charge of uh, testing the filters. So there's yes. a very fine filter that goes on top of an x-ray detector to keep all the optical light out because optical right. light will affect the detector as well. Okay. And those, they were like tissue thin. And she said, she said, you know, if I, if I sneezed on it, I could have broken that filter. Right. And so, and that was like her job was to calibrate those and test those. And, but if they had torn, then the detector was useless. Right. The whole thing, the whole thing. So yeah. So, and that was on her. I mean, she felt that that was, you know, her, her, that piece of it was on her. And, and so, yeah, there was a lot of tension in the room. I'll bet. <clears throat> Probably it persisted until well, first light as at least. First light, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Which which is what we call when you turn on the telescope. In in this case, it's kind of first X-ray, I guess. But yeah, uh, well, X-rays are light, so yeah. Yeah. So so, what are you doing now with Chandra and other data? What what sorts of things do you spend? What sorts of questions do you spend your day asking yourself and the data? So um, the objects I study are uh, supermassive black holes, distant growing supermassive black holes in distant galaxies, and those are called quasars. And when a black hole is growing, um, what that means is that there's gas from the galaxy it lives in, and it kind of swirls around and it falls into the black hole. But before it does that, it, gives, it has to get rid of a lot of energy, and it gives away that energy, gets rid of that energy by, by giving off light. And it gives off a huge amount of light. So something that is about the size of our solar system um, can give off more light by like a thousand times than all the trillions of stars in our galaxy. Really? 
Yes. That's a lot of light. It's a so, lot of light. Like the, 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 the words uh, growing supermassive black holes trip off your tongue like you say them a few hundred times a day because you probably do. <laughs> <I> do. <Yeah. laughs> uh, but but maybe for the rest of us, um, could, could you just back the truck up a little bit and, and dissect all of that and why why growing supermassive black hole is a thing that 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 is interesting and matters. Absolutely. Uh, so every galaxy, so we live in the Milky Way galaxy. So if you yes. go to a dark, a dark spot um, in the summertime, you can see that stripe of it. That's the galaxy that we live in. And in the center of every big galaxy like ours, there's a supermassive black hole. And so supermassive, and yes, we really call them that, is <laughs> um, that means it's like a million to a billion times the mass of our sun. Wow. And so the only re the only place we find these are in the centers of galaxies. And okay. sometimes they're not doing much of anything. Like in our Milky Way, it's just kind of hanging out. It's sort of a boring black hole. Um, I mean, <laughs> people would disagree with me, but I think it's boring. You got to live your life a certain way to call any black hole boring, Sarah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's near. It's extremely well studied because it's near us, um, right. and and so you can get a huge amount of information. But it's not really doing anything. It's just kind of hanging out. Okay. But um, but when you have a big, big black hole in the center of a galaxy, I mean, you have to build it. It has to grow. And so the way it grows, basically, is that it sucks in gas um, from the galaxy that it lives in. So our galaxy is not just stars, but it's also giant clouds of gas that can actually make new stars. Um, and uh, and that's what has to sort of fall into the black hole in order to to grow it so that it's uh, so that it's super massive. So, so which comes first, the the galaxy or the black hole? <laughs> ah, that is an excellent question. So uh, we don't really know. So um, we think that the very, very first stars um, were quite different than the stars that are made today because they're mm. just made from the material from the Big Bang. And the Big Bang, um, after the Big Bang, all there was was hydrogen and helium. That's it. And right. so you have to make stars out of that, which is actually right. quite hard. And those stars, we think, were much larger than the stars that we have today. Interesting. And, and then the fusion inside those stars is what created the heavier elements that we have. In yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah. So that first generation of stars was needed before we could get carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and the things that our planet and, our, uh, and we are made of. Um, so those very, very first stars were probably much larger than the most massive stars we see now because it was only hydrogen and helium. Mm. And then at the end of their lifetime, um, they would explode in a supernova. Um, right. And then the cinder that was left over would be a black hole because okay. they, those stars were so big. And those were probably the seeds of the supermassive black holes we see today. Huh. Wow. So, so what, uh, if you can put this in language that the rest of us who don't live on black holes for a living can understand, what, what does the kind of things that Chandra allowed you to see and do, what has that allowed you to find out in the last uh, 20 years? So, um, so many things. So first of all, um, X-rays are really fantastic for finding growing black holes because okay. right before material falls into the black hole, uh, as it's falling from far away to close in, it gets really, really, really hot. Yes. And at some point, and it glows and it gives off light. And at some point it gets so hot, millions of degrees hot, that it gives off X-rays. Okay. And that's 
pretty, pretty close to right before it falls into the black hole. And so those x-rays are basically beacons. They're like little signposts that say, I'm a black hole. Here I am. And, and so they're a really clean way to find those black holes. Because they're also the radiation that comes from closest to the actual, because you can't actually see a black hole, right? I mean, you, you just, that's right. You can't see the black hole itself. Yeah. But it's radiation that's close to it. And the other thing is that black holes are really efficient at making x-rays compared to say galaxies. Right. So galaxies can make x-rays, but, but not that many, but a growing black hole does a fantastic job making x-rays. So you can really distinguish it between, um, you can, so you can find those, um, those black holes in, in distant galaxies that are growing really easily because they just, they're like little beacons with those x-rays. So, so do you now, you know, has has the theory developed because of this work now to the point where things that you were taught as theory or as or as postulates when you were a student are now confirmed by the work that you and other people have done on, uh, you know, based on the data that we've gotten from Chandra? Uh, absolutely. We know uh, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, if I think about if I were teaching astronomy, uh, you know, 20 years ago when I started right. my my thesis versus what I teach now, I mean, the content would be wildly different. You can't use a textbook that's really more than, I would say, five years old when you're teaching astronomy Um, because there's so many exciting new discoveries that are made all the time. So, so you're, you're literally teaching students things that you didn't know when you were a student. Oh, absolutely. So it's impossible to, uh, when you're teaching astronomy, I mean, you can't, you can't be one of those like crotchety old professors who uses the right. same notes for 20 years. I right. mean, it just right. doesn't work. No, no, no. Because <laughs> we learn new things and realize, wow, we were totally wrong about that. Right, right. Well, I mean, I mean, a lot of professors, I'm sure, incorporate elements of their research into what they teach. Well, maybe graduate courses, but I think it's pretty it's pretty unusual to be standing so close to the frontier that you're literally teaching students from the other side of it. You know, that you're teaching them things that you have learned and that have been learned since the time that you learned the subject matter. That's that's pretty exciting, I would think, for a university professor. Absolutely. Um, another thing that I really love about being an astronomer is our community is actually not that big. Right. So uh, I think the total number of astronomers in the world is probably about 10,000. Really? So, um, so it also means that as a, an astronomer, I've gotten to see a lot of um, exciting results presented for the first right. time and to right. meet a lot of the people. And, you know, they're just normal people. But it, right. That is a really, that's a part of the community I really like is that it's small. And so you actually are able to meet people, um, especially over just the course of a career um, right. and feel like you really know people. And and have there been moments in your career when you've literally been looking at the data or doing the calculation or the simulation and kind of gone past something and then went, wait, what? Did I just see what I think I saw? Does that Does that actually mean you know, something that, that hasn't been known before or hasn't been confirmed before? Absolutely. So it's, uh, though, though I will say that often when that happens, it turns out you just made a mistake. Well, that's true. It <laughs> <laughs> probably happens about a hundred times for one that it's actually. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, but those moments where, you, where you're thinking, oh, yeah, that, that looks weird. I mean, that's sort of yeah. the, the joke, right? Is that yes. all the great discoveries aren't, Start wow, with, I think that's that. Hardly, yeah, right. 
that yes. looks strange. And right. then, but a lot of times it looks weird because you messed something up and yes. you made well, a mistake or, yeah, or there's some feature in the, you know, some characteristic of the instrument you're using. Right. That right. But it, it happens just off, often enough that it's not that though, that it keeps you coming back every night. I yes, absolutely. So I had the one, one that was memorable for me is that I was studying a supermassive black hole. Um, and it wasn't with x-rays with Chandra and I had four different observations of it. So there were four, uh, four times that we were looking at it. Um, and one of the things, the standard things you do is when you get your data, you add up all the x-rays together. And one of the, um, and the other thing you do is you look to see if they changed over time. Yes. And, uh, and for this one object, it's called Mercurian 231. I was looking at the data and yeah, and it just went boop, and it got brighter. And uh, that was very unexpected that it yes. got brighter. And so, yeah. uh, yeah, I tested it. Every way I could sure, possibly sure, think, sure. but it was, yeah, it was a really exciting result because what that means that I actually saw it get brighter yes. in one of, my, one of the times I was taking a picture of it is it meant that those x-rays were actually coming from pretty close to the black hole. Ah. And I, I thought they were coming from much farther away, but, but right. the fact that we saw it change in brightness meant they, they had to be coming from closer. So, and so that was, uh, that was an exciting result. So here's, this is the interesting to, thing to me about being a, a Terranaut because, you know, we, the, the kind of, you know, meme is that, that it's people who, who literally leave the planet to do their work. And, you know, you're sitting in your office or looking at a computer screen and seeing a, a, a graph that changes in a funny way, but you're not really, you're literally out there near the black hole going, wait, what, if that's what it does, then, then I can't be seeing what I thought I was seeing. It, it's, it's your ability to transpose yourself to that place, literally in a galaxy far, far away and not see just a line on a graph, but see the reality that it represents that lets you do your job. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the things that's really challenging about astronomy because there's, there's what we want to know yeah. and what we can see. And almost everything that we do is just by catching light, whether it's yes. x-rays or normal optical light or infrared right. light. Um, and so we have to interpret that light in order to get back to the things that we want to know, like how right. massive is our black hole and what is the environment like and how far away is it? Um, and so it's really, uh, it's sort of an intricate puzzle to yes. take what we can observe and then sort of go backwards. It's almost like we come in and there's a crime scene, right? And then you yes. have to reconstruct, okay, like what made, what was a series of events that made it look like the right. way it does now? <clears throat> right, right. The murder of a bunch of uh, proto stars by a black hole or something. Anyway. Yeah, they're not, they're not very forgiving. I will say no, that. <laughs> no. uh, so what's next for you and for the science of uh, astronomy? Well, one of the things that we are all very excited about is the James Webb Space Telescope is going to yes. launch. Yes. So uh, the launch right now is scheduled for next year. Fingers um, firmly crossed. Yes. 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 <laughs> and, and as I mentioned before, you know, we don't we don't get that many that many tries to put no. um, beautiful space telescopes in space. And so uh, James Webb is way, way better in lots of ways. Than <laughs> than Hubble. It, it is, it is a, a whole different uh, tennis court, quite literally. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's huge and it's going to be so beautiful and sensitive. And Canada's contributed two of the instruments to yes. it. 
Yes. So, um, so we've got a lot of astronomers as well as the instrument teams that are just, you know, and I'm sure those instrument teams are feeling like my friends were for the Chandra sure, launch. I sure. mean, just, you know, it's oh. nerve wracking. You have your career, your life's work. And as right. you said, you put it on a, a bomb with a hole in it. And it's, uh, it's, it's very, uh, very nerve wracking, but so exciting. So one of the things that James Webb um, is going to do is um, that I'm very excited about is with those um, exquisite pictures it's going to take, it's going to get actually beautiful pictures of the galaxies that, uh, that quasars live in. Right. And, and that's actually very, very hard to do because the quasars, as I mentioned, they're so bright. And so it's pretty easy for them to just completely overwhelm the galaxies that they live in. Right. Um, but with James Webb, because it is looking at light um, where the quasar isn't as bright, um, it's really bright in the ultraviolet, but not so bright um, as you go to the red and infrared. Um, and also because it's, it's going to take such exquisite pictures. I mean, the pictures are going to be basically 10 times better than Hubble. So, um, so that is, that's an area of science that I'm very excited about um, in particular. And so there are probably students that you're teaching today that 20 years from now will be teaching from the other side of that frontier and remembering. Yeah, exactly. They'll be sort of pre-James Webb and post-James Webb. And there'll be a bunch of things that just get tossed out because they were wrong. Often it's because they were naive. They were too simple. And then it turns out, oh, it's more complicated than what we thought. And then there'll be discoveries that nobody expected. And, And that I think is what's really exciting. So that the things that nobody expected to see. Wow. Well, it's fascinating work and it's been a fascinating career, I'm sure. And I'm, I'm really glad that you had a chance to visit us on Terranauts and to tell us about it. Thanks for being with us today. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Terranauts. As usual, if you'd like to support the show, please feel free to rate us or review us on your podcatcher app. Respond by leaving us some feedback or recommend us to a friend. Next week, we'll have another episode in a Terranaut's Guide to Leaving the Planet. I hope to talk to you soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.